of that hymn, and uh, I think it is true, and I think as we are going through the Revelation, we will see that the church will continue to be built, and uh, it is the one institution that God has promised to protect throughout the course of history. And we should, I think, have a very positive outlook on what God is doing through the course of history. And uh, that is kind of the overall big picture of what we're finding as we study uh, the Revelation. This morning, we are in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It is the uh, letter to the church at Sardis. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things, says he who has seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that to the extent the vulnerabilities, the sins, the weaknesses, and even the strengths in Sardis are found even in our lives and our church, that we would have that kind of self-reflection, that we would understand, Father, our own weaknesses, where we are unguarded, and that, Father, that we would seek to walk in faithfulness and in strength. We do pray, Father, that as we seek to excavate this passage, that we would come to know it accurately, and that by your Spirit you would instruct us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're now looking at the fifth church receiving the revelation that John had written as a political prisoner on the island of Patmos off the coast of Asia Minor. We're looking at a postal route. We've gone up, it's kind of like a horseshoe, and now we're on our way down. We're in the city called Sardis. What do we know about Sardis? Sardis was a wealthy industrial center, probably due to its location. It was a location where five Roman roads came together, so it was a place where there could be a lot of commerce taking place. It was said to be luxurious and loose. It was also thought to be impregnable in terms of warfare because it was high upon a hill, although it had been overtaken twice because it left certain portions of the city unguarded because they simply thought nobody could possibly take them down. Similar to the recurring theme of so many fallen nations They thought they could live a life of self-indulgence, of thoughtlessness, with no consequences. And yet they learned, and maybe they didn't learn, that that simply wasn't going to take place. In A.D. 17, there was a big earthquake that virtually 
decimated the city, and Tiberius, who was the uh, second Roman emperor at the time, basically funded what they actually called the resurrection of that city. So what did they have now? They, had, they were beholden to the Roman authorities. That's a, a lesson to the church, to be careful not to enter into the type of relationships with the government where they're going to ask you now to capitulate to their desires and their needs. There needs to be this recognition of the separation of the church from the state in that capacity. Sardis was also the center of civil worship, and that worship, similar to the other ones we studied, involved intense sexual orgies. It was horrible in terms of that city. That city was said to be contemptible even in the eyes of other pagans. So it wasn't as if the Christians merely looked at the city in this way, but the other pagans surrounding them looked at Sardis as a place where they probably wouldn't want to raise their kids. The name was contemptible, and they were notoriously pleasure-seeking and luxury-loving, and they had a culture that became, quote, a byword for the effeminate. Friends, let us not be blind to the fact that societies on the verge of collapse often become obsessed with very ungodly convictions regarding the appropriate pursuit of passion. We see it in our society, but it is also historically that which takes place prior to the collapse of many nations. In this way, Sardis was a bit of a microcosm of the West. You can't open a newspaper, you can't read a book, you can't watch a TV show or a movie without some obsession in terms of sexuality and what's appropriate and not appropriate in the culture in which we live. Interestingly enough, in his letter to Sardis, we don't see Jesus addressing persecution as he does in other letters, right? In other letters where he's like, you're about to be thrown into prison, you know, Hold fast, even to the face of death, because bad things are going to happen. That, he doesn't see that. He doesn't say anything along those lines. We don't see Jesus critiquing the instruction. He doesn't praise them as he did the church at Ephesus, that they didn't allow false teachers. And he doesn't condemn them as he did Thyatira and Pergamum for allowing false teachers. He doesn't really say anything at all about their relationship with teachers. All in all... It's been said that Sardis was a pretty peaceful church. Not a lot of issues in Sardis, within and without. They weren't attacked from without, and there was not a lot of conflict within. You know, I recently invited somebody to church, and as they were explaining to me why I probably would not see them in church, they were explaining that, well, you know, the thing is, I had an experience in church where there just seemed to be too much conflict, too many issues. The church shouldn't have conflict. The church shouldn't have issues. It should be, you know, a a fortress of equanimity. It should be a citadel of peace. The church should be a place where there just aren't any problems. (laughs) Well, if that's what he's expecting to happen, then I guess we won't see him. But I tried to explain to him that the church is that place 
where the battle rages. The church is the place where the guns get their hottest. You just think about it. If there is an enemy, and I believe there is, where is that enemy going to show up? He's going to be a mole in the church. The Bible doesn't talk about the devil, you know, having a tail and a trident and, you know, twiddling his mustache. That's not the way the Bible describes the devil. The Bible describes the devil as an, posing as a what? An angel of light. And if he can get on the elder board, he will. Better yet, if he can get in the pulpit, he will. Better yet, if he can get in the seminary where he can influence the pulpits, he will. We got, just let me remind you, we've got five guys right now who are candidating to be elders. <laughs> <laughs> and they are going to, quite frankly, you know, be the lion's share of dictation about where this church goes. I mean, I don't have any plan on retiring anytime soon. You know, I tell people, you, you can have my pulpit when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. But they will likely be the ones who kind of have the primary influence on who the next pastor will be and so forth. And you have a responsibility to grind them down to powder. And I don't mean to be mean about it, but that's, a, that's the job. And you need to know. And when they get up here and they exhort and we have that Q&A time, I don't, I don't encourage you to be mean-spirited, but you need to be able to ask whatever question you want to ask. And they need to answer questions because they're going to be the ones kind of making the big decisions in this church. All that to say, there was peace in Sardis. They didn't have the problems that many churches experience. I don't know that their pastor had the sleepless nights that sometimes I have or pastors have, dealing with conflict within. The, the, the goal of the enemy one of the tactics of the enemy will be to go into the church and make sure everything's peaceful. To go in and go, this is a place, this is a place of peace. But in Sardis, it was the peace of a graveyard. And we've got to be careful that if, if the reason we have peace in our church is because we're doing nothing, it's the wrong kind of peace. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that we indulge in unnecessary conflict. I, I don't, I'm not on board with that. At the same time, you need to say the things you need to say. And if it doesn't bode well with your environment, so be it. It's, it's, I had a buddy who was a uh, PE teacher at West High years ago, and he died of cancer. He went to be with the Lord, but he was, his name was Ron Park, dynamic guy. And he was maybe a little over the top sometimes, but he really didn't like it when Christians talked about their walk. He's like, it's not a walk. I mean, I think the Bible does talk about it as a walk, but he's like, it's not a walk, it's a war. I mean, you need to be able to engage in the war. Well, I mentioned in the call to worship, J. Gresham Machen, in his must-read book, Christianity and Liberalism, which was written like in the 20s, but it applies today as much, and you can read it in a few hours. It's not a very thick book. But he says something in that book that I think a lot of Christians today need to hear. And just those of you who know Lauren Leland, this was probably his favorite quote of all time. 
I'm not sure for good reasons, but it was. Machen said this, In the sphere of religion, as in other spheres, the things about which men are agreed are apt to be the things that are least worth holding. The really important things are the things about which men will fight. Well, let's move on. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Well, as previously discussed, the seven spirits are the Holy Spirit. It's the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to, we've already talked about that, so I'm not going to rehash that now. And, uh, but all this to say that this dead church of Sardis needed the Holy Spirit. Perhaps Jesus uses that designation, recognizing the only thing that's going to take this dead church and make it alive is the Spirit of God. That here is along with the seven stars, which are the seven angels, which are very likely the pastors of those churches. All this to say, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So those angels, those stars, those pastors need to recognize this, that the means by which the Holy Spirit works is through the preaching of the word of God. It's as if Jesus is saying, look it, you need to preach the word of God to give an environment where the Holy Spirit will revive those who are otherwise dead in their sins. Sardis was not a church that had a bad reputation. They had a good reputation. They had a name, and that's what that means. Basically, is like they were thought of highly in their community. People would look at Sardis and go, that church is alive and well. Nobody had anything negative to say about the church at Sardis. Nobody was making a fuss. Nobody was trying to attack them from without. Nobody was besmirching them from within, from outward appearance. They were probably viewed as a religious asset to their community. This is our church in our community. They don't make a fuss. They're not troublemakers. They're fine. They kind of handle our religious stuff. And we're glad they're here. As Paul would write, they had the appearance of godliness, but denied its power. I mean, I have to say, I feel that way sometimes. Like, for some reason, you know, I've been here my whole life. I've lived for my whole life. And I do a lot of funerals. And I, do, I generally won't, I'll often not do weddings. I'm not a wedding for hire guy. But when somebody asks me to do a funeral, unless I have a conflict, I'll usually do the funeral. And I'll do it for free because you guys pay me. So you're paying me so I could do it for free because I don't want them to think I'm doing it for the $125 that they want to pay me. But I do feel sometimes like, well, you're, you're the religious guy. we got a funeral. Can you do it? And I've got to be careful that I kind of don't mold into that. I've got to be careful that, well, here I am. I'm doing the funeral. I don't want to offend everybody here. Heaven help me that I do anything but preach the gospel at those memorial services and that God uses that as an opportunity to give life to people who have no life. And you could pray for me. I'm doing another one just next week. So they were viewed as alive 
But Jesus knew something about them that wasn't readily apparent, and that is that they were actually dead. You have a name for being alive, but you are actually dead. The church in Sardis at least brought to my mind the words of Jesus in Matthew 15, 8, and 9. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They had the veneer of religion. You know, they probably had a cross somewhere. They might have had a pulpit. But they were actually spiritually dead. They needed the Spirit of God to reveal to them that they were dead. People need, by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, to, it needs to be made known to them that they are in fact lost, that they are in fact dead. It reminds me of that creepy movie that came out a few years ago, The Sixth Sense, and I don't know if you guys ever saw that movie. It's this little scary-looking kid, and he can see, like, dead people, you know, and, like, the dead people are active in the movie, and, not to, you know, I'm, I'll try not to ruin it for you, I guess. But there's this chilling line in the movie that I think was, is so appropriate in terms of our understanding of what the world in which we live. He says, they don't know that they're dead. And I feel like we live in a world of people, spiritually, who do not know that they're dead. Sardis, they did not know that they were dead. They thought they were alive, and Jesus is saying, you're not alive, you are dead. But the entire church wasn't infected. There were, it was still a church. They had not crossed, as it were, the Rubicon. They were still somewhere within the boundaries of being called a church. Verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3 Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. This this call to be watchful probably shows us how lethargic the church was. They were like the city. They just thought, what could happen to us? We're fine. We're strong. They, they, but they had chinks in the honor, ar- armor. They had vulnerabilities. They had openings that they just were not watchful of. They weren't examining, as it were, their own lives. Even the most beautiful, by the way, and well-made home needs an opening just about the size of a quarter for somebody to put a hose in it, turn it on, and ruin the entire house. A buddy of mine, a neighbor of mine, built a beautiful house. I mean, just a beautiful house. And sure enough, just a little leak. And he had hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage just because a little water gets in there. We, we need to ever be introspective. Like, what little gaps do I have? What openings do I have? Where am I giving the enemy a place, a foothold, to come in and, and derail me. And that was a problem with this church, with this city. Be watchful. Be aware. You've got to stop cruising. You've got to be wise. They had works. I know your works. 
And those works gained human approval. That's kind of dangerous when the world kind of likes you too much. But they had not gained divine approval. In the world's eyes, they were alive, but in God's eyes, they were dead. That little phrase, I've looked at your works, they're not perfect before God. You might go, well, I mean, whose works are perfect before God? But we have to understand kind of what is meant by a statement like that. In order for a work to be, as it were, perfect before God, number one, it's got to be in accord with the Word of God. But of course, even our works we do that are in accord with the Word of God aren't really perfect. Right? There's a, as Calvin said, there's a little bit of hell attached to every single thing we do. But our works are approved before God when they are done in Christ. In the same way that we are approved before God in the Beloved, our works are approved before God in the Beloved. Apart from the grace of God, our best works are not approved before God. And so their works are not going to be approved before God because their works are not done in Christ. But when you and I do works in Christ, God sees those works as approved. Well, this church was on life support. And the answer to their dilemma was very similar to what we saw in the church at Ephesus. Remember, he said, remember from where you have fallen. Remember what you were taught. Remember what you had learned in the very beginning. He's kind of going, this was a church, Sardis, that had learned right things. But they had strayed from those right things that they had learned. We need to be aware of what constitutes biblical Christianity. We need to know what the gospel is. Let me tell you, I don't think that I'm overstating the issue when we turn on, you know, Christian television or listen to Christian radio and how seldom we actually hear presentations of biblical Christianity. Again, I don't want to sound negative, but when I see what's going on in our culture with churches that have 5,000 or more, and I'm like going, that's interesting. I wonder what's being said in that church that is filling that stadium, and I'll turn it on, and I don't hear anything that remotely sounds like biblical Christianity. What makes it the Christian faith? He's saying to the church of Sardis, you've departed from that. You need to remember what you were taught from the very beginning. You need to take inventory. We have to have self-reflection on the governing patterns of our church. I need to do it. Our elders need to do it. You need to do it. We, we just need to be continually examining these kinds of things. The same apostle, by the way, who wrote the Revelation, wrote this in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, and what a message for today's church. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By the way, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this passage misused and misinterpreted as if the means by which we test the spirits is how it makes me feel. You know, I've got a nice, smooth endocrine balance about what was just said. Therefore, it must be right. John doesn't allow us to use our own methodology in terms of testing the spirits. He actually will talk about for a while in that passage, the Antichrist and different doctrines, you know, 
rejecting the, uh, the physical nature of Christ and this and that. But he actually tells us how we are to test the spirits just a few verses later in verse 6. Speaking as the representative apostle, speaking as one who had actually seen Christ and viewed all the things that he had done, he writes this, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Friends, Paul writes that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church, Jesus being the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets, that is the word of God, that is the scriptures that you have on your lap, that is the means by which we are to determine the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This church, Sardis, didn't have an issue with the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It wasn't even part of their discussion. And I pray it'll always be part of our discussion. I pray I'll always have to defend myself in terms of the things I say. I pray anybody in this pulpit, if you walk up with a Bible in your hand, that they are not going to somehow go, you're a troublemaker. Quit asking those questions. I mean, if you are a troublemaker, then we'll deal with that. But you know what I mean. Those questions, legitimate questions, need to be asked and answered in order for the church to be what it is, and that is a kingdom of priests, right? All of us together. You need to hold me accountable, I need to hold you accountable, and so forth. Verse 3b. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Just to quell any discomfort some of you have had in what we or I believe. I do believe that the Bible teaches that there will be a second coming, a personal, physical second coming of Christ. This is not it. When he says, I will come as a thief, he is not talking here about the second coming. We read in the scriptures the coming of Christ numerous times and in numerous ways, either to bless, I'm going to come and bless you, or I'm going to come and remove your lampstand, and so forth. These, these comings of Christ are conditional upon the faithfulness or lack of faith of the church and so forth. So this is not the second coming. And we don't know exactly, by the way, when he comes as a thief in this passage, exactly what that looks like. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to guess what that looks like. But I will say this, it's probably not going to be good for that church. He's coming, and whatever vestiges are left in that church of biblical Christianity, um, that's going to be gone. This church at Sardis, as a lampstand for Christ, in one way or another, I would argue from this verse, is coming to an end. And that is a, that is a, a judgment that Jesus has promised in other churches as well. He basically is going to come in some form of judgment against this particular church. And again, I don't know specifically what that means, but it does mean somehow if the church doesn't deal with itself, providentially God is going to deal with that church. Well, there were some in that church who remained faithful. Just think about those people for a minute. Probably not an easy church to attend. Right? Can you imagine 
being in a church where the majority have gone off the rails and you're trying to hang in there. The, the temptations the devil would put you through in terms of you being the one faithful person left are uh, copious. I mean, can you imagine the devil having a field day? Make them, no, they're the only faithful person. You know, it makes me think of the screw tape letters, right? Make them full of themselves. Make them say things that are inappropriate. Have them start fights. Have them on and on and on on all these things that are going to feed upon the fact that you know you're right and you know the church has gone south. Not an easy place for these small group of people at the Church of Sardis to be. A difficult kind of environment that they found themselves in and probably not another church in their parking lot that you can go to. That's a really good church, by the way, in the other end of our parking lot. But you probably had to go, you know, to Thyatira, which is, I don't know, 40 miles away in those days. I don't think they had Priuses in those days. It wasn't going to be something you could do in 40 minutes. Verse 4, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So even though the church had a false name, right, a false good reputation, there were some in that church who actually had a true name. Now, in the Semitic culture, name really kind of describes the whole person. Uh, So you have, like, legitimate Christian people within that church, and they had not given in to the cultural allurements. They had not defiled their garments. They had not played the game that the church was playing in terms of allowing the world to come in and dictate what the church was going to be. They were holding firm. They were holding fast. They had conviction. They had not defiled their garments. And again, talking about the utilization of garments as a metaphor for actually our souls. The glorious promise is this, that they shall walk with Christ in white. Let us not lose in our study of the Revelation, you know, and all the things and all the magnificent, sensational things, how the Lord continually brings us back to the gospel. You know, we don't want to go to a prophecy conference and hear all about nuclear bombs and what have you. We need to ever be brought back to the gospel. To walk in white with Christ. White, what does that mean? Purity. Having been cleansed. Unassailed by sin. Either by the world by which we're surrounded or the sin lurking within us. Jesus is saying, you're going to walk with me and there's going to be no sin. Outside of you, inside of you, these are the ones who have not defiled their garments, for they are worthy. Now, let me just stop there for a second. Because we might read that in such a way, when we go, oh, they're worthy, as if somehow the statement that they're worthy means that they've earned or merited that clothing. That is not what the passage says. The fact that he's saying that they are worthy is not telling us, at least there, how they became worthy. 
And matter of fact, as we keep reading on, we'll see how one becomes, as it were, worthy to have those white garments. The next verse. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will, blot, I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, just so you know, you know, this idea of being clothed, not to get all into the Greek here, but it's the middle voice, which actually, just, just to be frank, the middle voice means that it's either something that was done to you or you do to yourself. So the, the, the way this is actually written doesn't tell us exactly, well, who's clothing you? Right? It's just not, it's not clear by the, the grammar of that particular sentence. But when we read the, the entirety of the Scripture and we begin to go, well, when it comes to the righteousness, who's clothing whom? We, we recognize that by looking at all of Scripture that it's very clear that we're not clothing ourselves in righteousness. My dirty right hand can't clean my dirty left hand. I need something outside of me to cleanse me. I think one of the most beautiful examples we see of this is when Joshua, the high priest, is standing before the angel of the Lord. In Zechariah chapter 3, so you get this picture of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan's there accusing, which is what the Satan is and what he does, accusing and accusing. And you have Joshua standing there. So you have the Lord, the angel of the Lord, which may very well be, some people argue, the pre-incarnate Christ. All right? Nonetheless, you have this audience with God and with the devil and the accusations, and the accusations were probably pretty accurate. I mean, Joshua was just a man. So it was probably like, I know some true things about him. It's this and this and this and this. And then we have in that passage in Zechariah chapter 3, Joshua having his dirty garments taken off. They don't say, Joshua, take off your dirty garments. No. It's those standing there. They remove his garments. And then they clothe him in the garments of purity. And he stands there. And I mean, if you read that passage, it's so beautiful because, and it's like, as the angel of the Lord stood by. I mean, he, like all this is happening, you can imagine how vulnerable Joshua must have felt, right? There's the devil accusing me of things I actually did, and there's God hearing it. And yet God, by grace, takes those dirty garments off and he puts on him the garments of righteousness. I pray that's true of every single one of you, that that has happened to you, that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Well, any religious pursuit apart from being clothed in the righteousness of Christ consigns us to what Jesus had said earlier, and that is that you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. I don't care how religious you are. If you're not clothed in Christ, all of your religious pursuits amount to naught. The approval of God by grace through faith in Christ must have been 
something that preceded anything Joshua was going to do. Toward the end of this process of being clothed in righteousness, we read these words. It's in Zechariah 3, 5b through 7. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge uh, of my courts, and I will give you the right access among those who are standing here. Very similar to what we saw with Isaiah in chapter 6. Right? It wasn't until he's cleansed that he says, Here am I, send me. It's not until Joshua is clothed in the garments of righteousness that the Lord says, hey, I've got work for you to do now. I'm going to put you in charge. There is now some confusion about what it means that they will not have their names blotted out of the book of life. I mean, I, you've probably heard this. People will read that in such a way as to suggest that you're going to lose your salvation, lose your regeneration. Well, there are two predominant orthodox views of that, and I'll just tell you what they are and which one I think is right, and you can pick for yourself, I guess, or during Q&A you can ask me why. I'll tell you a little bit why. The two views of what it means that you will not have your name blotted out of the book of life are this. One is that your name will not be blotted out of the book of the covenant. All right, well, what, what does that even mean? Members of the covenant. Now, this is going to sound, this is just basic biblical historic Christianity, just so you know, but it's something that a lot of people today don't understand. In the Old Testament, you were part of the covenant if you were in, if you were what? Did anybody know? You were an Israelite, right? And it wasn't just Jews. It was people who proselyted in. And if you were part of the Jewish nation, if you were part of Israel, if you were a Hebrew, you were part of the covenant people of God. Were all the Jews, were all the Israelites, were all the Hebrews, were, were they all actually saved? No. Right, but you were part of the covenant. In the New Covenant in the New Testament, you are part of the covenant by being a member of a Christian church, the body of Christ. That's why you'll read letters where the entire church is addressed, beloved in Christ, saints, and so forth. But is every member of every church actually a Christian? Obviously not, even biblically not. Because we see, you know, Hymenaeus and Alexander and other people put out of the church. So one argument is, this is the idea that you're in the book of the covenant, but like Esau, you deny your birthright, and now you're no longer in the covenant. So that's a theologically, biblically acceptable way to understand this, right? It's just kind of phenomenological. It's the way you see it. I don't think that's what he's talking about, but that's one thing just for you to be informed if anybody asks you. 
The other, oh, and by the way, I have a verse here. I mean, I, I want to quote this verse because this is the concern of every pastor. First John, again, the same apostle who wrote the Revelation, First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that, um, that they were not, that they all are not of us. In other words, what John is saying, they appeared to be part of the body of Christ. But they went out that it may be, manifest, may be made manifest, some of your versions will say, that they were actually never one of us. That's, a, that's the concern of every pastor, that there would not be a time when you will say, Lord, Lord, and he'll look at you and go, I never knew you. The second option, and I think the more likely option, is that the book of life is the book containing the names of the elect, those who are truly believers, known but to God. Only God knows who the true believers are. And this is, I think, more likely because elsewhere, when we read about the book of life, we read that these names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. That's what we see at least twice in the Revelation, the idea that these names are eternally written in the book of life. That a true believer's name will not be blotted out, by the way, does not necessarily imply that it is possible that it would be blotted out, which makes it a little bit tricky, right? It's just a negative way of saying that God will preserve you. It's kind of like going, look at you walk in faith, your name will remain in the book of life. And you might, if somebody says, well, what is the mechanism by which it remains in the book of life? Ultimately is God saying, I will preserve you. You are kept by faith, Peter writes. Who keeps us? God keeps us. How does he do it? By granting us faith. Finally, we read of the confession of Jesus that those who persevere in the faith will find that Jesus will be their advocate. You know, I will confess you before the Father. I will confess you before the angels. It's almost like he's painting the picture of this big event. You know, you look at that, you try to get your arms around something like that. Because we all have friends who make us feel pretty good about something we did. Right? You ever sit down with somebody and you're kind of feeling lame about something you did and they're like trying to they're like hey don't beat yourself up you know and they're saying nice things to help you not feel so bad about something you did we like people like that we need other people too we need the other kind of people you know sometimes you need the person who's going to let you feel bad for a little while right but you but when 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 Jesus confesses our name before the Father. Can you imagine existentially what that experience is going to be like? When he goes, look at Father, he belongs to me. She belongs to me. I died for him. I died for her. It, it, it makes my mind go to Romans chapter 8, right? Who, you're thinking about Joshua, the high priest, right? Where Satan's accusing. What does Paul write? He goes, 
who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's almost like, who dare bring a charge? And even that passage in Zechariah 3, like he's like, who are you? Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? It's almost like, how dare you make this accusation? Why? Because it is God who justifies. It is God who has made this person righteous through the blood of Christ. What will that be like? And I'll tell you something else. If we recognize the beauty of that, if we recognize how profound it is that Jesus is our advocate, that standing before the the piercing eyes of an omniscient God who knows every foul thing we've ever thought or done or said and hear those words of approval from the Father through the blood of Christ, how little will the opinions of men matter to us? We're so worried about people's opinions. And I'm not saying we should be utterly dismissive of all of that. I should understand and function within my society. But at Sardis, the opinions of men took over. They were more concerned about the praise of man than the praise of God. And we, we may delude ourselves into thinking, well, that's not me. Well, you better check to make sure there's not an opening the size of a quarter somewhere in the back of your head when we start saying things like that. We need to be introspective, introspective and watchful. Well, how fitting in writing to a church which allowed itself to be molded into its surrounding culture. A church which I have little doubt withheld themselves from speaking the name of the true Christ, the true faith, the true gospel before an imposing and loose and luxury-loving Sardis to be called out by Christ because of their cryptic pseudo-faith. For them to kind of recognize that you better make a choice who you're going to confess. Now, this isn't some sacrament. But this is, when Jesus says, you know, you need to, and I'll read this in a second. We'll finish with this. When Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. It's not a works righteousness, and it's not a sacrament. He's basically saying that if you have genuine faith within, it should somehow reach the surface. And if it's not reaching the surface, you might want to evaluate whether or not it's in there at all. Matthew 10, 32 and, 30, uh, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you, by your Spirit, would open our eyes and our hearts. Grant us a wisdom for honest self-reflection as to whether or not we are, in fact, alive or dead. And we do pray, Father, that the things that remain, that you, Father, would fan those things. The things that are true, Father, that, that those things would be fed and they would grow. We pray for our church, especially as we consider new elders, but we, we pray, Father, also for the church, that the church would not fall into the trap of imitating the world rather than influencing the world. We do pray, Father, that your kingdom would continue to grow.
And all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.